Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Thank you for joining us today on the program. I trust that you've been tuning in every week and following us as we share the Word of God. We've really been delving into the book of Revelation in the last 10, 12 weeks. And uh, your response has just been overwhelming. And for that, we want to say thank you because it really does let us know that people are appreciating what we're saying and what we're sharing. Your comments on Facebook and your different messages via email and uh, through the phone has really been an encouragement to our hearts. And we just thank the Lord that there's hungry hearts out there as we share something positive from the book of Revelation. Uh, we're glad to be with you again today. And if you have missed any of the programs, you can always go back and uh, watch any of our programs that are archived. We have several hundred of them archived on our website, and the information will be on the screen as well as YouTube. And you can follow us every week at the same time. We encourage you to tell your friends about us. And, uh, you know, so many people are even taking these uh, uh, segments that we're teaching and sharing them in their Wednesday night uh, services, just pulling down the YouTube stuff or uh, getting it from uh, the TBN app that you can get for your iPhone or for your TV or any of those ways to view it. So there are so many ways to view it. Uh, that you could uh, share it with your folks if you're a pastor or whatever. Today on the set again, uh, for probably for the next several weeks, my oldest son Jeremy is with me today again on the program. He had, was not with me the last six weeks, uh, and uh, it was one of the reasons is because he has a new addition to his family, and uh, we got a new uh, grandbaby, a little uh, a little girl, Aspen Tabor, that came on the scene in November, and so uh, we're excited about her, and I'm sure Jeremy is too. But he's on the set with me today, and I appreciate some of the input that he has from the book of Revelation, and especially as we delve into this particular church uh, called Pergamos. Uh, uh, you're going to be blessed because he's got some insight of some things that he taught about uh, the era of Balaam that's going to bless you. Tune in every week because we're going to build on this. It's going to take us a couple of weeks to unpack this and to just unravel it, uh, but before I get into it, I just want to say welcome back on the program, Jeremy. It's good to have you again. It's good to have you on the program. Good to be here. Uh, Jeremy also pastors a great church in Winchester, Virginia. Uh, they meet on Monday nights. Uh, their website will have information about their location and when they meet, and uh, you'd be blessed to go by and uh, share uh, in one of their services if you're anywhere near Northern Virginia or the Winchester, Virginia area. Also, let me just say quickly, too, that we are coming to a city near you. We travel all the time, and my website has information about where I'm at. I'm somewhere different almost every week, so uh, we're coming to your area, and uh, uh, we love it when we meet our television audience. We thank you for uh, coming and joining us and uh, just being with us in one of our meetings. Uh, now getting back into the Word of God, we want to get right into the Word today and for the next several weeks just share some powerful uh, thoughts with you. And we, What we've been dealing with over the last probably 10-12 weeks as we've been dealing with uh, this concept about repentance. The word repent is not a bad word, even among grace circles, if you understand what that means. Now that, you know, uh, repentance simply means to change the way you think. And uh, there ought to be a constant paradigm shift in our thinking because, as I shared in one of the recent programs, anytime uh, you repent, uh, it gives you, for instance, the book of Acts says uh, that when you repent, uh, God will send forth times of refreshing that come from the presence of 
of the Lord. And uh, that repentance is not always just a standing around saying, I've got to beat my chest with repentance from sin constantly. I believe at some point we've got to come to the revelation that we've been forgiven of our sins and uh, move on with a paradigm shift that says what I need to do is change the way I think. And as I change the way I think, it may be that that thinking is fresh revelation about Christ. And what that does is it releases times of refreshing. That's what I believe is going to bring real revival uh, in the American church and literally around the world. I believe when God's people begin to change their mind about who they are, what they have, what Jesus has accomplished for us, and begin to activate and flow and move in those things, there's going to be such a massive release, I believe, of a time of refreshing that's unprecedented, uh, I believe, in world history. And so we just encourage you to tune in. See, that's the things I believe the Spirit of the Lord was communicating to these churches in the book of Revelation. And let me say before, again, we really open this up, that uh, these seven churches that are in Revelation, first of all, we need to get this, they were really seven churches that were really in Asia. So that, uh, you know, first thing we've got to look at is that these churches were the first century church that really uh, is making a paradigm shift from an old covenant to a new covenant, from law to grace. And that's the real thrust. I mean, if you've been listening to us, you realize that almost every one of these churches that he's dealt with, he's dealt with how they think that's able to catapult them into literally being able to live in the new covenant and in the kingdom of God that has been available for over 2,000 years. So these first churches is who this is written to. Now, however, even though it was written to the first uh, seven churches that were in Asia during that particular time zone, does not mean they don't have relevance to us. What's a tragedy to me in some ways, Brother Jeremy, is that the fact that, uh, you know, uh, here we are 2,000 years in the New Covenant, and we still got to address uh, these paradigm shifts. We got to address this repentance because these are still the same problems that keep us out of a new covenant mindset or a new covenant mentality. Now we've dealt with up through the church of Smyrna, uh, I followed last week, but today we're going to begin to uh, talk about the church at Pergamos. So I'm going to read the text to you. Revelation the third chapter, I'm sorry, Revelation the second chapter, verse 12, it says, And under the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things saith he that hath a sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast uh, my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein uh, Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block uh, before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Here's the message, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now it's going to take us a couple weeks to unpack this, so stay with us a little bit. The first thing that I want to address as we get ready to open this is that he is, first of all, always gives a revelation of some aspect of himself that you saw in chapter number one, 
that will be the answer to whatever it is that he wants them to repent of. For instance, in other words, when he says, uh, I'm he, before he ever tells them to repent, he says, here's the revelation of myself that I want to give to you. I'm the one that has a sharp two-edged sword that's coming out of my mouth. Now, I, uh, you know, Hebrews, the fourth chapter, in verse, I believe it is number 12, it says, for the Word of God is quick, it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides asunder between soul and spirit. It is a discerner of the thought and the intent of the heart. But the context there, Jeremy, is not just uh, any word is sharp and powerful. Not just any word is life-giving. But the context of the fourth chapter of Hebrews is the word that flows from rest is what's powerful. That's what's quick. That's what's sharp. So uh, the word that flows from rest is the word that he wants to give this church at Pergamos. Now, the thing that I want to open in this segment for both of us to share, and I know I'm taking a little while to set this up, but the word Pergamos itself literally means mixed marriage or much marriage or uh, I believe the idea of polygamy is here. You know where he's talking about and you'll see that. I know you said some things before we came on set about the Nicolaitan thing. But the, th the thought that I really want to deal with in uh, this uh, mixed marriage is not so much, it's not a, uh, what I'm after is not a racial issue by any stretch of the imagination, but what I am after is about the mixture of law and grace. And if I could take this to Romans 7, and then we'll, we'll begin to discuss this, but it says, chapter 7 in verse, uh, Romans chapter 7 says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath the husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Verse five, 4 is the key to this. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you should be married, watch this, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now, but now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What's so powerful is I shared some things back some time ago about, uh, I, I titled this message, Torn Between Two Lovers. Because what you've got here is you've got a woman who's bound by the law to a husband as long as that husband's alive. Now what I always shared about this is that there are, have, from God's viewpoint, there's only ever been two men of the earth. I really deal with this at extents in my book, God's Beauty and the Beast, that we wrote. But uh, there's only ever been two men in the earth. The first man was of the earth earthy. The second man was the Lord from heaven, Adam and Christ. And the problem is, is that uh, this woman has been married to both of these. And you know, when we think about the woman, there's a lot of deep things I could get into that we'll probably get into a little bit later as we deal with another one of these churches. But just to keep it simple, this woman called the church has been married to both of these men. This, this, this bride, this woman, you know, because we're dealing with much marriage or mixed marriage. Yep. And what has happened is, is the church has been married to Adam and they've been married to Christ. And the deal is, is that as long as your first husband, Adam, is alive, you are bound by the law 
to that husband because the old covenant was written to an old man. Yep. You got to decide who you're going to preach to these days, the old man or the new man. You're either trying to get Adam to behave or you're going to try to develop, mature the new man. But the bottom line is, is that we have been married to both of these and we're torn between two lovers. One minute we in love with Adam, the next minute we in love with Jesus. But see, this text is really not dealing about with divorce and remarriage in the natural. It's dealing with uh, which covenant keeps you connected to which man. Because the new covenant keeps me connected to the new man. And the, the key to it is that we should be married to another, mm -hmm. even to him who's raised from the dead, so that we can bring forth fruit unto God. So there must be something that we need to know about our first husband that frees us to really develop this relationship with the new husband, Christ. And Romans 6 really taught, know, know ye not that you are dead you know, reckon then yourselves to be dead. You were crucified with Christ. So uh, uh, you're not dying, you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And if you don't reckon that old man to be dead, you're going to be back and forth in these two covenants, dealing with uh, who, you know, who am I in love with? Who am I married to? And what we do is we con continue to create, and this is a powerful thought, we continue to, con to, uh, to uh, perpetuate what Romans 7 calls an adulterous relationship. Because if Adam is still alive, then I've got to tell you, your second husband, Jesus, is in adultery, and so are you. Yeah. So it, Jesus would not have married us if he did not know that my first husband, Adam, is already dead. But Romans 6 tells us it is so that we're free to be married to another. And so, so you know, uh, when you read that, you understand that the old man is dead. I'm married to another. Then it frees you to have this relationship with Christ so that you're not living in this uh, spiritual adulterous situation where you're torn between two lovers, but you're finally set free to be married to another. And I'm going to let you jump in there because I could take a whole segment teaching on all that, but we just take our time and develop this. But jump in there. Uh, you know, I was thinking even, you know, when you look at the book of Revelation especially, you have to look at it from the standpoint because he starts out this whole book as this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Him. What's going to change the, the church in general, what's going to cause real uh, reformation, real repentance to happen is a revelation not of uh, how bad we are, but an identity in Christ. And so every church that he deals with here, he, he begins to deal with them and say, uh, repent over something, except for one church. He doesn't, there's only one church that he doesn't say anything about repentance to. But every other church that he's, he addresses in these second and third chapter, He'll come and say, but I need you to repent of something. I need you to change your mind about something. And as we began to deal with it uh, in our church, I began to say, you know, of course, the repentance is not where I need to jump down to an altar and beg God for forgiveness, but it's, it's simply to change my mind about the way I think, to, to change the way that I think about things. And what he's really trying to get us to do is change the way we think about our identity. Uh, when we were, before we, we, we were saved, uh, before we turned to Christ, we were an identity. We had an identity in Adam. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were, therefore, you know, when I was born, nobody ever had to teach me how to sin. Sinning came natural to me because I was born. I had, I had an identity in Adam. Uh, but it, the same thing happened to me when I got born again. Is I got an identity in Christ. The problem has been is everybody's still trying to teach me the identity in Adam rather than an identity in Christ. They were still trying to teach me how not to sin and what all was bad rather than teaching me just simply the identity of who I was as a son. In this book of Revelation, I believe he comes on the scene and begins to teach a revelation or an identity of what sonship looks like. Uh, we just came out of the Christmas season and I was teaching uh, 
I, you know, I was kind of teaching a little bit about the birth of Jesus. And I was talking about how when Jesus was born, uh, you know, here's Joseph. He comes, you know, to a city. He's, you know, he's because all the world was to be taxed. And so they had to go back to their own city. And, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, it, when he goes, you know, he's looking for a place for, for Jesus to be born. You know, yep. of course, we know that he's born in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. And I like to think of the backstories. I like to think of what was happening in those times. And I was thinking about, here's Joseph who's come to a place where the angel came to him and said, this thing that's done in Mary is of the Holy Spirit, and it really is the Son of God. Here's Joseph. He comes to a place, and there's no, there's no rooms. There's no rooms available in the hotels, and here he is in a barn. Probably in the back of his mind, he's thinking, there's no way the Son of God is going to be born in a barn amongst all the mess, amongst yeah. all these animals, all these things. You had to be thinking, if, if Joseph really believed this was the Son of God, yeah. he's probably going, there's no way, I, I can't let this happen. I can't, you know, he probably is stressing over trying to find a place for the Son of God to be born, a suitable place. But in the end, there's no place for him. But I thought about, you know, if that innkeeper would have known that the Son of God was going to be born in that place, probably he'd have found a room for the Son of God mm -hmm. to be born in. Uh, if, if somebody that was sitting there who had a room knew that the Son of God was going to be born, they probably would have given up their room for that night for the Son of God to be born in their room, if nothing else, just to get in the good graces of God. <laughs> uh, but he didn't. What I began to see is that God, when, when Jesus was born, he didn't look like, he didn't look any different than any other person. He didn't look like. He didn't have a difference about him that anybody would have said, oh, that's got to be the Son of God. I'm going to give up my room. He looked like everybody else. Yeah. And when I began to look at, I believe in Luke, it begins to give the lineage of Jesus. And it goes clear back to Adam. And it's, it ends with the Son of Adam, the Son of God. And it ends with Adam being the Son of God. I've read that probably a hundred times, but it never struck me like it did this Christmas season. And I began to realize the reason why God didn't, Jesus didn't look any different is because Jesus came to remind us that we from the very beginning were intended to look like our Father God. The problem was is when Adam partook of a tree, he took of a lesser identity and he began to he began to live in a lesser identity than a son should live by. But Jesus came to restore back to us the identity of sonship and to put that identity of Adam to death in his death, burial, and resurrection. So in his birth, he showed us what sons would look like. In his death, he put to, to death that old identity. But as I was sharing with the, uh, the people this, the, the, the repentance in the book of Revelation from uh, each one of these churches, I began to show them that it was a repentance about identity. He was, came, he was coming to show sons mm -hmm. a true identity. And one of, in this church here in Pergamos, he's coming to show them that your identity is also not just as a son, but it's also wrapped up in who you're married to. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus came to reverse the widow and orphan syndrome yep, that yep. happens in the church. We think that we are orphans and widows, but Jesus came to deal with that and show us that we were not meant to be orphans, we're meant to be sons, and that we are not, uh, we are not adulterous and we're not uh, widowed people any longer, but we are now married to Christ. Yep. We are rightful heirs to sit on His throne. No matter how you look at it, we have, rightful, we have a right to sit on the throne with Him. We have right to enact as to all the things of God, we are no longer separated from what God has in store for us. And with this church in Pergamos, he comes and addresses that, and he's really addressing the change of mind about who you're married to and what the identity of a wife and what a son would have uh, as an identity being married to Christ. 
And so when we look at it from that perspective, and I begin to change my mind about my identity as a son and my identity as the bride of Christ, that I'm not going to be married to him, but I'm already been That's married it. to yes, him. Right. Then what happens is I realize, okay, then I've got to start, instead of being reminded, and see, this is what happened, you know, growing up is a lot of times we were reminded, we kept being reminded of our old marriage yep. to Adam. Yep. And the truth of the matter was, it's not even like Adam was a good husband. Yeah. Adam was a wife beater. Yeah. <laughs> he mistreated his wife. He, he, he brought, he, he made us live less than what we, we lived in squalor. We lived in hog pens. Yep. Because of our marriage to Adam. Yep. Why would anybody want to keep being reminded of that marriage and put it on a pedestal like it was more powerful than the marriage that we now have in Christ. Yeah. Christ is a good husband who brought us up out of a hog pen, who doesn't beat us but gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness and happiness and, and all the uh, of just all this blessings and favor that comes to be, being married with Christ. Why would we want to keep being reminded of our marriage to Adam yeah. when we've got something so much better? To me, I would think that even Jesus who is now our husband, would be offended that every time he would come to dwell in our churches, to dwell in our midst, we keep reminding ourselves of our old, our old marriage. When Jesus is going, I don't care about your old marriage. I want to, let's talk about our marriage now. Let's work on the relationship we have now and the goodness that we have now. And so this mixed marriage that's taking place here, I believe that when, when he says, I'm going to come like a two-edged sword, is yep. I'm going to cut off any, even any remembrance of what you had about Adam, because I don't want to hear about Adam no yeah. more. I want to focus on you. I want to focus on us. What happened in Adam is in the past, but now it's me and you. It's me, you, and Christ. You know, it's, it's, it's Christ and his church and him living his life through us. When we begin to change our mind about that kind of identity and begin to realize our marriage to Christ, to me, that's really what begins to change us. I don't need to be reminded of Adam. Yep. I need to be reminded of my husband now. And you know, I was thinking while you were saying that, you know, the, he, he said one of the problems in this church was uh, they, they allowed Balaam to cast strongly block. We'll get into Balaam in another segment. Uh, but he taught them to eat things sacrificed to idols. And uh, idols, you know, today, we, in other words, we're, we're not taking a piece of meat and feeding uh, people in the church something that was offered to Dagon. Mm -hmm. But when we offer them false images about God, then what happens is that's idolatry. And I, I was thinking while you were saying that, it's like we don't realize that our first husband, Adam, is dead, so we've got his picture. I could say it another way. We've got his images sitting everywhere. And that's what we hold up to people every time they come into the church is we hold the picture of their old husband. Yep. Like we're trying to keep him reconnected to that bad relationship rather than reckoning him to be dead so that we're free to be married to another. Because like you said, we're not going to get married to him. We're already married to yep. him. And if we're not married to him, number one, it's illegal to be intimate with him. And number two, it's illegal to use his name. Yep. But since I'm married, I can use his name because I've got a fresh identity. I am not in an adulterous relationship because there is not a duality of two men living in me anymore. Yep. There's just one man. And I'm already married to this new man. And if I am, then I could bring forth fruit unto God because I've been delivered from the covenant that keeps me bound to that first Adam, uh, to that first man. Because verse 6 says, but now we are delivered from the law. Not just delivered from sin, but we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held. We were held there. Yep. That we should not serve in the, uh, that we should serve in the newness 
of spirit, not in the oldest of the letter. So that doesn't mean there's not a serving that flows out of this, but it means we serve now not in the oldness of a legalistic code or a law, because I believe that one of the things where Satan's seat is, as what we were reading in the book of Revelation, is Satan's seat, where he operates, is within the realm of the fallen man of dust. Yep. But we are not in the man of dust any longer. We are in the man from heaven. As the earthy, we bore the image of the earthy, uh, but we will now bear the image of the heavenly. Uh, go ahead. We got just a couple of minutes, and then I'll take it back before we well, close. You know, even you, uh, you know, when you said about, you know, that they're saying here that uh, where he keeps reminding them of where Satan has their seat. Mm -hmm. Under the first Adam, Adam didn't take dominion. He didn't. He didn't have. He didn't. Uh, operate in the dominion that was given yep. to him by God. So when the serpent or Satan came to his wife, his wife was deceived and then yep. he entered into her, her fallenness with her. But in Christ, when you realize an identity in Christ, you won't even, it won't even matter to you if Satan has his seat here or not because your husband has dominion over him. When yep. you get an understanding of Christ, Christ has the dominion over the devil. So it don't matter if the devil's there or not, he has no dominion over you. You, yep. won't, you still will not fall. It will not bring you into a fallenness because Christ came to redeem us from the fall, and he took the power of Satan from him. So there's no more power of the devil. So when yep. you even look at him, he keeps reminding them of where Satan has a seat there. I just think, I keep reminding myself that still my husband Christ has defeated him, and it don't matter if there's a seat here or not for him, my husband has a greater seat. Yes, sir. And I, I'll tell you, the dominion then flows from that. You know, I was thinking while you were saying that, we're just about to run out of time, but, you know, I was thinking about where he tells them in the book of Corinthians, he says, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, you know, that I'm concerned uh, that you would be deceived, even as Eve was deceived, to move away from the simplicity that's in Christ. Now, one of the things we emphasize in this ministry constantly is that Jesus is the center of it all. If it does not flow from the central theme of the cross, or the filter of the cross, it's not going to hold up. Yep. But when you begin to realize that even some of the weapon of the enemy, according to Colossians chapter number 2, I believe it is, it's the handwriting of ordinance. It's the power of condemnation yeah. to keep you beat down rather than to arise into your true identity. So if he can get you to believe a lie about who you are, he could certainly get you to believe a lie about what you got. Yep. And if he gets you to believe a lie about what you got, then he can certainly get you to believe a lie about what you can do. But I believe as we begin to find a place of repentance, we will move away from the mixture of law and grace. We will move away from this adulterous relationship between Adam and Christ, and we will become not bound to the law to Adam, but bound by the Spirit to Christ, and we will no longer serve out of a performance-based religious system, but out of the newness of spirit, not out of the oldness of the letter. Uh, we're about to run out of time. I tell you, this is good to me. I really trust you get another cup of coffee and, uh, you know, sit down with us every week and just join us as we share the gospel concerning the book of Revelation. Tune in Every week there'll be some information on the screen. Uh, and uh, like I said, you can also go back and watch some of the archive programs that we have on our website that will help you come up to date with where we're at. But we're going to continue this conversation. Uh, but take a moment to call the number on the screen if you need prayer, if you want to uh, sow into our ministry, order our books or anything, uh, call the number on the screen. God bless you. This series is about living life in the context of sonship. Jesus is recognized as a son in the River Jordan by his father. Flowing from his identity as a son, Jesus comes up out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit with incredible demonstrations of the miraculous. He introduces to his followers the new covenant idea that God is more than just an austere judge. He is our Father. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Let us awaken to our true identity and set creation free.